again, we're in Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read from verse 25 through 29. Galatians 3, verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is not male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. It seems like these days when I frequent my favorite websites, there's always those ads along the side, of course, but usually one of them is wanting me to click in to find out if I am descended from royalty, if I am a son or daughter of some king or queen. But don't we, as people, have that kind of natural question in our minds? Who am I? Where did I come from? Who were my ancestors? How did I get where I am? In other words, what is my identity as a human? Now, my grandmother on my mother's side did a lot of research, and I can go to Washington, D.C., and I can look etched in stone in the Capitol Rotunda. I can see the name Peregrine White. He is one of my ancestors. He was on the Mayflower. Most of the voyage, he was in the womb of his mother. He was born in the bay before they actually disembarked the Mayflower. I know that I came on one side from Puritans. I can also go to Ellis Island and in New York and look under 1888 and see the name of my great-grandmother who came as a 16-year-old betrothed to an 18-year-old came by herself on the boat from Germany through New York and eventually to Illinois. I know something about my identity, who I am. And, and Paul is looking in Galatians 3 in this section, Paul is saying I'm going to answer that question for you, Galatian believers. I am going to help you understand your identity, who you are. He's already made to the agitators, to the Judaizers, those who would say that we are children of Abraham and the Gentiles are not. He's already made to them this preposterous statement in 3.7. Be sure it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And he goes on in his polemic to, to really to upset them, to, to say not only are the Gentiles sons of Abraham, but they do not have to be circumcised. They do not have to keep the law of Moses. And he hit all of these hot button items for the Judaizers and he is speaking to them <laughs> And he's coming now full circle from 3-7 into this final paragraph of the section 25 through, or 26 through 29. He is giving their 
the answer. He's, he's answering this question, who are we? Who are we? And the keynote of this whole section, verse 7 through 25, is answered in 26 through 29 with the phrase, if you belong to Christ. The answer is in union with Christ. What it means to be in Christ. Faith is the means by which we come into this union. And, and Paul makes a pretty dramatic switch from verse 25 to verse 26. In 25, he's been talking, and, and we kind of naturally gravitate to that when we, we hear the law and we hear these things, oh, that's Israel in the Old Testament. And we kind of think, okay, it's the history of the law through Moses and God's selecting Israel as his chosen people, and we're kind of moving on, and, and Paul uses that language in verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under the pedagogue, under the guardian. We, but he switches in verse 26 and readdresses the Galatians for you are all sons of God. And in the Greek, the, a verb has the address with it. You are would be part of the verb, but he doubles that by using, saying, but you, you are sons of God. He, it's an emphasis in the Greek. You are now. Now y'all, Galatians, are understand you participate in union with Christ. You participate in this salvation history as well. And what is he addressing here? Again, something shocking to the Judaizers and perhaps surprising to the Galatian believers. You are sons of God. You all are sons of God. All believers in Christ have this status. And, and what is sonship to the, the Old Testament uh, Jews? What would that signify? Even to the New Testament Jews here in this first century, what did sonship mean? It symbolized status, did it not? It symbolized the right of inheritance. You are the ones who inherit the property and the wealth and the name. But Paul says, you all are sons of God. In Christ, all believers, Jews or Gentiles, men and women, are sons of God. You are all accorded full status as God's chosen people. And the relationship, what's the key? Is it ethnicity? Is it heredity? Is it where you were born or what ship you came on or what king? No. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That is how you are accorded the full status. Through faith in Christ. It's union with him by faith alone. Sonship is universal for all who are in Christ. The all of verse 26 and 
following immediately on, for all of you, or in some of your translations, for as many of you. It is for you as a status of your being in Christ. And it points to your relationship to Christ. In verse 27 he says again, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And some of the uh, commentators will say, Well, this is a surprising switch in verse 27. Because we were talking about by faith. Those who come to Christ through faith. They are sons of God. And now we're talking about baptism? Where did Paul get this? We, as modern American Baptistic Christians, we think of baptism as a, this is a normal event in the life of Christians, is it not? But I think we need to be careful here in the context of where Paul places this. For all of you who were baptized into Christ. It signals that baptism is more than just as many of us take it sometimes, a symbol. It is more than just an act of obedience. That, of course, if you're a Christian, you must be baptized. And it's more than an individual act where an individual Christian says, well, you know, I, I'm thinking about, you know, I ought to get baptized sometime, but you know, I'll do it when I can. But there are two aspects going on here in this context. It's baptism first into Christ, or literally baptism to Christ. But it's also baptism into the body of Christ. There is the individual and there is the corporate. Or a man by the name of George Beasley, Mur Mur George Beasley Murray says it better than I can. He says, quote, It is at once intens intensely personal and completely corporate, involving the believer in relationship simultaneously with the head, meaning Christ, and with all the members of the body. Again, it's not just an act of obedience. It's not just a witness to those who would watch you being baptized. It is intensely personal because it's you as an individual believer, but it is also completely corporate because you're being baptized into the body of Christ. You're baptized to participate in the body. But why? Because this is because one is baptized into Christ, not vice versa, as some churches would have it. There are some who baptize and then they hope you come into the body. But we're baptized into Christ that we come into the body of Christ. Baptism to Christ is baptism to the church because what is the church? The church is the body of Christ. Look at the succession from verse 26 to 27. You are sons of God through faith. You are baptized into Christ. 
you have been clothed with Christ. That tells me that there's nothing here that suggests that the covenant of Christ, the church of Christ and membership in it operates on the basis of heredity, who my parents are, where I came from, or where I've been. It operates solely through faith and the baptism into Christ. And then I am clothed with Christ. As Beasley Murray says, faith is integral to baptism. It's here together. Again, it may be surprising to see it, but it shouldn't be to us Christians. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, again, those who have come to Christ through faith, you are all sons of God. You are members of the body of Christ. Beasley Murray says, Faith is not self-sufficient, and baptism is not self-operative. What does he mean? Faith is not self-sufficient. In other words, faith is not just for faith in itself. And many people say, you know, they, they try to measure faith. But by faith, we see Christ in the scriptures, do we not? We, we see him in the Gospels. We see him in the writings of the Old Testament and the New. We need that. But we also see Christ in the body of Christ. As we see Christ's spirit in working in other people, we see what God is like and how he operates and, and what he does, and we rejoice as he builds up the body. But we also see Christ in the sacraments. We see Christ in baptism. We see him, as he describes elsewhere in one of his letters, that we were buried with him by baptism into death. We understand something about that sacrifice and something about what Christ did. But we also see him as we come to the table. Didn't he say, as long as you do these things, remember me? Remember me. Faith is not self-sufficient in itself. We come to greater and greater faith and understanding as we use the word, as we use the sacraments, as we live in the body of Christ. But baptism is not self-operative as if it is independent from one's understanding that it's independent from your attitude, independent from whether you're a believer or not. Beasley Murray again says, in the New Testament, it is everywhere assumed that faith proceeds to baptism and that baptism is for faith. Read the scriptures. The same gifts that pertain and are associated with faith are associated with baptism. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. We can say that about faith, we can say that about baptism. We were washed, we were cleansed, we were sanctified, we were set apart, we were justified. Faith and baptism are integrally woven together. Faith comes to baptism. The idea, he's, Beasley Murray says, the idea of baptism creating faith is out of the question. 
Baptism, the act of baptism, has a result, an effect, the putting on of Christ. The two are not identical. They're, 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 there's not an equal sign between them. But again, they are integrally woven together. The Christian puts on Christ in baptism. Colossians chapter 3 Paul writes this beautifully. Put on the new man, he says, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction, but Christ is all and in all. Do you, do you see how this paragraph of Paul, our identity in Christ, hangs together? Faith and baptism are integrally woven, but what is the result? is that we are clothed with Christ. We have put off the old man and we have put on the new man because we're baptized into Christ. It's with reference to Christ. It's our dedication to and appropriation by Christ. Christ is all and in all. And if, if we think that baptism generates faith, then we've missed the most important component, Christ. We've left him on the side of the baptismal font. We've left him out of the equation. We've left him out of that step, even if we think we are being obedient. Baptism, again, it's more than a symbol, more than an act of obedience. It's not, as some people look at it, of turning over a new leaf. It's not becoming a better person. And it's not even reaching a certain age. Ah, oh, well, you know, you're a certain age now. You really ought to be baptized. And there's nothing here about us being worthy. There, there are Christians who will say, well, you know, once I understand more, and, and, and once I've kind of cleaned up my act, once I, I've, I've shown God that I really mean business with him, then, then maybe I'll make that step of back. There's nothing here that says we come to God with a list of our accomplishments and what we've done for him. But what is it? It is the beginning of a new existence. In Christ, we are a new creation. Not based on our worthiness, not based on keeping the law, not based on who we were born to, where we're from, but in Christ. We were baptized into him. Paul goes on. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is not male and female, for you, again, you all, y'all are one in Christ Jesus. We have these opposite pairs, and there's been a whole lot written about these pairs, Jew and Greek, slave and free, man and woman. And, and some take this as, you know, there's, there's the, the three common things to, to all cultures that, that we all have issues with. You know, your, your rank, your, your money, right? Your, your social standing. And then uh, there's that old male and female thing, your gender oppositions. 
Now, you've probably heard at some point some of the old Jewish rabbis writing before Paul had written this, although I can't find evidence. But about this time, there were a number of rabbis who, who came to the kind of the same, what one calls benedictions. Rabbi Judah ben Eli said, there were three benedictions that ought to be recited every day. Blessed be he who did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be he who did not make me uneducated. Blessed be he who did not make me a woman. That is not what this verse is about. But in modern times, this verse has been co-opted by the multiculturalists, the Marxists, and the feminists. The multiculturalists look at this verse and say, well, Paul finally, you know, he gets it right. Because the great struggle of mankind, when he mentions Jew and Greek, is a racial struggle. And so all of our problems come down to fixing racial conflicts. The Marxists and those like them would say, no, no, Paul got it right when he looked at slave and free. He looked at the, you know, how much money you have determines, you know, what your tendencies are going to be in life toward capitalism or socialism. So it all boils down to class struggle. And the feminists or those who would follow them called egalitarians, making things equal, say, no, no, it's gender equality. Paul here, and they, this is called the manifesto of humanity. Humanity's manifesto, Paul has gotten this right, it really comes down to gender equality. As an example, if I could take a few minutes of your time, I will read a statement from one egalitarian. This verse, meaning Galatians 3, verse 28, this verse shows that the church has in past generations maintained unbiblical support of a paternalistic church and family order. This has kept Christian women from rising to their God-ordained place of equality of position and authority alongside men in the leadership of the church and in the family. And there are people who take that as their manifesto. Now, given all these things that I've recited, I came across this quote, and I don't know who Klein R. Snodgrass is, but he said this. This text has become a hermeneutical skeleton key by which we may go through any door we choose. And as they're going down the hallway deciding which door to open, we're still left with, why did Paul write these pairs? How are these opposite pairs related, most of the commentators say. Some give us the charts in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Colossians 3, and they're helpful. We can see that Jew nor Greek is listed in a couple of other places. And slave or free is listed in a couple of other places. But the only place he mentions male and female is here in Galatians 3. 
And I wrestled with these and wrestled with these. It's like, well, I can't find that key. I can't find that skeleton key that opens this. Why, uh, you know, why this pair? I can think about Jew and Greek, and then I remember, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, it was a key distinction in that time of the world in terms of religion. The Jews were the chosen people of God. They are the ones that God said, you shall be my people and I will be your God. And everyone else is not. And then I realized, wait a minute, he's talking to the Galatians and the Galatians were hated by both Jews and Greeks. The Jews thought they were pagans or worse and the Greeks thought they were barbarians or worse. So that didn't really work for me. And slave or free, well, they're the two most important social classes in Roman Empire, but how does that relate to the religion? And then male and female, perhaps the language, and it is literally male and female, it's not male nor female, and it seems to allude to Genesis 1, where God said, let us make man in our image, male and female, he created them. And maybe, as some say, this is a jab at the agitators, those who would say they must be circumcised, and of course the women can't be circumcised. And I didn't know what to do, but I came across an article, <clears throat> surprisingly, on the internet. And I don't remember the gentleman's name, but basically he reminded me of what I remind my algebra students almost every class period, don't make the problem any harder than it is. What is the context of the verse? It's in the context of our identity, who we are in Christ. And he basically said, answer this question. Who in that realm, that world of the Judaizers, the Jewish believers who were saying you must be circumcised and follow the law of Moses in order to be in the kingdom of God and stay in the kingdom of God, what group to them were the ones who would inherit, who would become the heirs? Well, it's free Jewish males. And what, is, what are the groups who will not inherit, who will not receive the inheritance, who will not be named as heirs, who will not have the property and not have the wealth and not have the name. Gentiles, slaves, and women. And if you're in one of those groups or more than one of those groups, you will not inherit. You will not be sons They were excluded. But Paul says, Christ coming. Christ has changed all of that. Christ resets the fundamental nature of the people of God. They are a new creation. So whether you are a Jew or a Greek or a Galatian, whether you are a male or female, whether you are a slave or free, all of that does not make any difference because it is union with Christ. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Union with Christ is the basis for the new reality that has been brought in Christ. 
One man, literally, you are all one man. One man. Well, who is the one man? Who is the one seed? Not seeds, plural, but the seed of Abraham. What does he say? It is Christ. You are one in Christ. You are one man with Christ. You were baptized into Christ. You are Christ's body. The church was there before we were baptized, but we were incorporated into it. In Christ is not an ecclesiological formula. The church, yes, administers baptism, but it is Christ who gives grace. It is Christ who incorporates us into his body. It is Christ who makes us believers and members of his body. It is Christ who makes us new creation. And now I hear and I'm sorry, it's been over 20 years, but I still hear his voice. One of my supervisors at the big old French tire company south of town, when I was on the verge of thinking, man, I got something, you know, I understand what's happening, he would say, uh, be careful, huh? And I think Paul would say, be careful, huh? Unity in the body of Christ does not dissolve the character and functional distinctions of the members in it. Read 1 Corinthians 12. Indeed, the Spirit distributes gifts and energies and the variety of those gifts and ministries as He will. There, there is still those distinctions because we are, we are unique. There is that diversity among us. There are those who would rush from three, Galatians 3.28 and go straight to Romans 14. See, Paul got it right and he says it again. There are these things in life that, that just, they don't matter. They're called adiaphora. Things that are, you know, okay, you can do this, but they're not part of, of what we would think of normally as, you know, this is a requirement for faith. And I would say do not indiscriminately, and if I could make a verb out of it, adiaphorize the diversity within the body of Christ. We need each other. We need the variety. We need the gifts. We need the ministries. We need the energies that the Spirit works in each one of us in the body of Christ. And then Paul comes to the key point in verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are. You are Abraham's offspring. You are Abraham's seed. You're members in full standing because of the grace of God in Christ. You are sons of God because you have been bought by the Son of God. You are members of the body of Christ because by one spirit you have been baptized into one body, he says in 1 Corinthians. And is there any mention of requirements? <laughs> Is there any mention of keeping the law as an added necessity to be in the body of Christ or to stay in the body of Christ here? Does heredity, nationality, ethnicity, are they seen here as pre-existing conditions to receive this status? To receive these conditions? Are there conditions on our membership? But remember... Christ is a corporate person, the seed, 
but we are incorporated into the seed. By faith we are counted with him as the seed to whom the promises were made. By faith we are in union with him and with all those who have faith in him. The promise and its fulfillment are here together. I promised to read from Ephesians 3, and I'll be quick. <laughs> but Paul talks, he says, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And later he says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery of Christ. That's what would astound the Galatians, but also knock the agitators on their heels. Their mentality is, if I am a Jew, I am a part of the seed. I am Abraham's offspring. And Paul says, no, that's not the condition for membership. It's the mystery of Christ that he has made us fellow heirs, fellow receivers of the promise of Christ. And I believe that heirs here focuses not on the good old future, the, the, what will be in the hereafter, but now. Here is your identity now. If you belong to Christ, you are sons of God. If you belong to Christ, you have, been, have put on Christ. If you belong to Christ, you are one in Christ with all those who believe. If you, are, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. And he makes one final one again speaking to the Galatians about this glory they have in Christ. But keeping in mind, he's still in a polemical discussion with the agitators. He says, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the law? No. According to your heredity? No. According to your nationality? No. Heirs according to promise. And that promise was given to Christ as the seed of Abraham, and you are in Christ by a promise. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, these are glorious, glorious thoughts. I pray that you would cause us to meditate on these things, who we are in Christ. This is our identity, and we rejoice, and we're glad in it that you have done these things in Christ. Again, may all the glory and honor, dominion and power be yours because you have done this for your people and we rejoice. In Christ's name we pray, amen. In his name we pray, amen. amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from the book of Isaiah chapter 61. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. 
For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all nations. Amen.